Well, it's a great joy for me personally to be here today to see, uh, started to say old friends, maybe the better term is longtime friends, although I guess we're all getting a little older. It's great to see several of you and to meet several of you as well already today. As Fred said, I had the privilege of uh, being a pastor here in the community, and it was a great joy. It's always a great joy to be back in the area here. We're looking today at Psalm 46. Psalm 46, a, a psalm about God's powerful presence in the midst of a crisis. Psalm 46. I'll be reading it throughout the message, but you can look at the text here as I start. Walk with me through a time tunnel, or if you're a fan of a certain old or recently remade TV show, take a quantum leap with me back about 500 years. You're in Germany. It's the year 1520. Daily, you face sharp opposition from all the religious leaders. Where do you turn? What do you do? Well, if your name is Martin Luther, you might whisper to your close friend, Philip Melanchthon, come, let us sing the 46th Psalm and let the devil do his worst. As many of you know, Psalm 46 underlies the famous hymn of Luther, Ein Festerburg ist unser Gott. How'd I do, Alice? Close enough? <laughs> if George were here, he could help me. The famous song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Many years later, after Luther's death, Melanchthon heard a young girl singing Psalm 46, and he said to her, sing on, dear daughter of mine, you know not what comfort your song brings. Psalm 46. This is one of those psalms that for me is uh, one I turn to in crisis or when ministering to those in crisis. I think you'll see why as we walk through it today. It's among the most popular psalms in the history of God's people. In fact, one might argue that next to Psalm 23, it's perhaps the most comforting of the psalms. Spurgeon called it the song of holy confidence. And maybe its popularity has to do with the fact that it, it fuses together two attributes of God. And we see them throughout the whole psalm. We particularly see it right in the opening verses, comes right out from the shoot there by telling us about God's presence and God's power. Those two twin themes that weave their way and they come out especially in the refrain in verses seven through 11. These, these twin towers that have never fallen, <laughs> twin towers that never will fall, these twin truths that weave their way through this psalm and I would submit to you are what we need to weave into our hearts as we face hardships in this fallen world. So I wanna walk through this with you today and I, I want us to think about three specific occasions where this uh, Psalm 46 power is especially needed for us. We, we need it at all times, but there's going to be some occasions here. And so the first occasion is, is, is this. 
to count on God's powerful presence when you face sudden crises, when you face a crisis that, that hits you. Are we a slide ahead here? Yeah, we are. That's great, thank you, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, when, we, when you see these, these crises that you face, now in Psalm uh, 46 verse one, we see a crisis. It's what the text calls, a, calls trouble, some kind of distress or some kind of affliction that uh, the psalmist here faces. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Verses two and three then describe what this trouble is. It's an earthquake. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. I don't know if you've ever experienced an earthquake. I've never been in the epicenter of one, but it was about 11 years ago, I was on the third floor of um, where my office was located at Southeastern Seminary. It was uh, one, one o'clock in the afternoon, early August. The epicenter was uh, north of me in Richmond area of Virginia. It was a 5.8, so significant. I will tell you, I have never felt that before. If you've been in one, you know more than I know probably, a, a serious one, but I felt the floor shaking a little bit and the walls with no footing. It's a very fearful thing. You can imagine what a serious description of this is here. The way he writes with these graphic terms, this intensity, mountains shaking. You can envision mudslides and tsunami waves crashing against the shore, waters that flood and destroy. Now you might not have experienced an earthquake, but you may have experienced other natural disasters. Um, hurricanes, which I think even here we call them hurricanes, right? Even though we're hurricane, I've, yeah. But I suppose, uh, you know, those kinds of tornadoes and forest fires, uh, even frozen pipes can be a real irritant to you. But I'm not thinking mainly about natural disasters as I re reflect on this today. I'm thinking of plenty of other unexpected crises you have experienced already, or you or those you love have experienced. Your good friend at school no longer wants to hang out with you. They've chosen a different friendship group. You lose your baby in the womb. A sudden fall results in a broken hip. Your boss fires you for no good reason. A lump appears in your body. Your adult child defects from the faith that you sincerely and diligently try to teach him or her. You make a left-hand turn as I did not too long ago, and a truck broadsided me. Your brother chooses to divorce his wife. You suffer a home invasion or a house fire. Your spouse is unfaithful. 
I could go on. But you know what? So could you. You could list a lot more things than I've listed today that you would call a crisis in your life or those that you love. Tough and unexpected hardships that in God's providence he allows to come into your world. What does God say to you when these crises appear? Or when you fear they will happen? Well, do you see the unfallen twin towers right there in verse 1? God is our refuge, meaning a place of safety, a place into which you can run for protection. Have you ever seen a, a three-year-old? Uh, there's a, a, a growling dog. What does the kid do? Does he growl back at the dog? I don't think so. He runs behind mama's strong legs or daddy's legs for safety. Lauren and I were at my son's house in Durham, North Carolina just a couple weeks ago, and they have a golden doodle puppy. Now, I don't know much about dogs, but this is a, this is a puppy, but this is a puppy that's, you know, this high. And I have uh, four granddaughters, ages six down to one. I was in the backyard with the uh, two middle ones, and uh, this not well-trained uh, golden doodle puppy, who's bigger than my granddaughters, were jumping up all over them. And uh, this dog has not been around that long. And this was very fearful. And I looked at my, one of, uh, the, the, the fear on her face. So I, I just picked her up and kind of kicked the dog away. Sorry, dog lovers. Uh, but I had to protect my, <laughs> I felt like I was a hero that day, by the way. Now, pick her up and take her inside. Uh, she needed safety. She needed protection from that. God is refuge for us. He's our strength, verse 1 says. It's actually a more active word there, a word that has to do with God giving us strength and empowering us to fight and stand against those, uh, those crises that come. And then he says this in verse 1, where we see this idea now of God's presence, a very present help in trouble. He is near us very present, ever present, always ready to assist us, always available to help us, always accessible, always eager, always responsive to our 911 call for help. Immediately, you don't even have to wait the average of seven minutes for the response apparently there, uh, that, that, that God comes without delay. And that's why we can say, verse two, we can say with confidence, therefore, we will not fear. The answer to worry, the answer to anxiety, the answer to fear throughout the scripture is always going to be the same. It's God's presence with us and his power to help us in the midst of that hardship. Now, let me tell you what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you'll never lose a child. It doesn't mean that you'll never break a hip it doesn't mean that your son or daughter that you're investing time and in will not turn away. It doesn't mean that you will never get fired. But if you're a Christian, I think it means at least two things. First, you will never face the crisis alone. If you fear some future tragedy, someone might give you some well-meaning advice don't worry, it'll probably never happen. 
Well, I would say that's well-meaning advice that people might give you, but brothers and sisters, don't settle for that kind of lame counsel. We don't need to wishfully hope that something, some dreaded thing will never occur. Or, or, or think that if we're just a good enough Christian, how about that lie? If we're just a good enough Christian, if I just make sure I read my Bible and go to church regularly, I will never face these hardships. What I love about scripture is its realism. God's word allows us to say this. World, Satan, hit me with your best shot. My God is my refuge and strength, and he is my very present help in trouble. I can trust him to protect and provide for me, whatever happens. I don't have to fear that future thing. Or someone might say sometimes to you something like this, well, you know, those things might happen, but we'll just, you'll just cross that bridge when you come to it. May I revise that sentence this way? If you face something like this, you will never cross that bridge. You and your God will cross that bridge together. You see the difference there? That's what the psalm is guaranteeing to us. That God is with you and for you. And in the new covenant, he has come even nearer to us than to the ancient readers of Psalm 46. And as we've sung today, because he has come to us in the very person of the Lord Jesus Christ in God incarnate. And he's given us his Holy Spirit who lives within us. And so you will never face a crisis alone. Uh, a second guarantee from this is you will, God will protect you from ultimate harm. Now, now scripture gives us story after story and promise after promise of God's assurance that nothing can ever separate you, his sons and daughters from him, from his love for us. Nothing will keep you from your eternal destiny to be with him forever. Even amid a massive earthquake or the, the, the relational equivalent of that or the, the hardship, your God will protect you from eternal death, from condemnation, from slavery to sin, from, from, from final judgment and wrath, from the destructive power of Satan who seeks to devour your life. Those are the promises that Psalm 46 gives us and allows us to bank on. But if you're not a Christian, those promises are not yours. If you've never recognized your sin as your deepest problem, if you've never repented of your sin and trusted Jesus alone, you've never seen your lostness without Christ, these promises are not yours. You have no assurance that God will be with you in a hard situation. And you have no assurance that he will protect you from final judgment or from sin and Satan. But these promises today can become yours. That's the good news as we gather here today. Because this Lord Jesus Christ who became human Celebrate, we celebrate here on this Christmas season here. He, he, this, he lived this perfect life on our behalf. And he died for our sins. And he rose from the dead on the third day. He ascended in victory 
to the right hand of God the Father. And one day he will return to receive all who belong to him and to judge those who do not. And I can assure you that the members of this church want you to be among that first group for whom Christ will come to receive you. That's what I want for you. Don't delay if you're not yet a Christian. Today's a day to turn to him, to believe in Jesus Christ. There's a second truth I want you to see in the second stanza here. Not only can you count on God's presence uh, when you face a crisis, but when you face opposition from other people, opposition from other sources. And so in the second stanza, we learn about the city of God. The city of God. What is this city of God, this holy habitation of the Most High? Well, it refers to Jerusalem, a place in the Old Testament where God chose to place his name and to dwell with his people. What does that mean for us in Hurricane West Virginia? Well, in the New Covenant, God no longer dwells in a special way on a particular patch of Palestinian earth. He no longer meets his people in a temple made with human hands. He now dwells with us as people, especially when we gather together as the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, in Galatians chapter four, Paul explicitly contrasts the earthly city of Jerusalem of his day with the new Jerusalem, what he calls the Jerusalem above, consisting of all of us, Jew and Gentile alike. We are the city of God. And in verse four, we learn that the city has a river. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. What is this river the psalmist refers to? Is it the Jordan River? No, that's not there in Jerusalem. Well, it must be the Jerusalem River. I have fun with my students. I tell them, so what's the name of the river? And a student will say, the Jerusalem River. I guess they need more training than we give at Southern Seminary there. There is no river. Jerusalem was one of those famous ancient cities that had no river. So what is he talking about if there's no physical river? Well, you need only go back about 10 Psalms to Psalm 36, where the psalmist says this. In Psalm 36, verse seven, Psalm 36, verse seven, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from what? From the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. The river is God's grace, God's provisions for us. God's promises to be with us, to help us. In this desert setting where the psalm was written, the, the river pictures God's sustaining grace, his life-giving love, his quenching and refreshing and restoring help. This is a mega theme in the Bible, by the way. We see in Genesis chapter two that God created a river that formed the watered, formed and, and then watered the Garden of Eden. Isaiah pictures that future restored blessed city of God. 
to be a place of broad rivers and streams. The Lord will surely comfort Zion, Isaiah 51 says, and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. We have this fulfilled already in part with Christ's coming. We have a future fulfillment we long for. And we see this throughout the scriptures all the way to the end when we come to Revelation chapter 22. Verse 1, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Here then is the river of God's grace. This river that splashes grace upon us. Spiritual water that quenches our thirst and saturates our life with power. A river of God that, that laps up against our sides. You notice the contrast, however? Verse four, this river, contrasted with what? Remember back in verse one? This contrast of chaotic, destructive waves in verses, verses two and three. Streams that quench and give life here in verse four. And tsunami waves that crash and destroy in verse two. I suspect our Lord Jesus had in mind this, this passage like this in John chapter seven. In John 7 and verse 37, Jesus said this, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the spirit, John tells us, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. The point of this river and stream imagery right here in verse four and, and throughout uh, the scriptures is this, that Christians, we find our true fulfillment in Christ and his indwelling spirit. God's grace flows into us and God's grace flows out from us. And that's the beauty of the church because it flows out from us to whom? To one another. This is the picture of the church. Verse five then tells us God is in the midst of her she shall not be moved. Unlike the mountains back in verse two that indeed are moved through this earthquake, the, the uh, city of God will not be moved. Sisters, brothers, does that sound like anything in the New Testament to you? Does it sound anything like what Jesus said in Matthew 16? I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It shall not be moved. Just like the city of God in Psalm 46, so the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus promised that he will build his church. Uh, we don't build the church, God builds his church, though he empowers us to be part of that process, and nothing will overthrow it. Even if the ground beneath us moves with earthquake power, and God's people, God's people will not be moved because of his powerful, stabilizing presence. When? When does God's city, 
the church especially need help. Look at verse five again. God will help her when morning dawns. Now, now does that mean you need to get up each day at the crack of dawn the way Gerald Foster used to? Still, brother? Okay, better man than me. That to be a good Christian, you must be a morning lark and not a night owl. That if you sleep in, you will somehow miss the grace of God. No, no. Let me tell you what's going on here. The morning was the time when ancient wars were conducted. You understand that. Ancient armies didn't have electricity or battery-powered lights or combat spotlights or searchlights or night vision goggles. And so our God promises help for us right at the point when we need it, at the break of dawn, when the enemy would attack. In fact, isn't that what verse one already told us? A very present help when? Yeah, in time of need. A very present help in the midst of the crisis. When the morning dawns. Verse six pictures that help. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, they fall, like verse two. He utters his voice, the earth melts. Now you don't have an army opposing you, unless you've been in combat. You might face a lot of other forms of opposition. That boss who doesn't like you. Those coworkers who oppose you and they oppose your Christian commitments and they seize on any inconsistency in your life to declare you to be a hypocrite. In-laws who criticize the way you raise your children. Racism, sexism, ageism, all those kinds of things of mistreatment that you face in your job world. These are the kinds of things that we face in this fallen world. Do you believe verses five and six are for you? If so, do you call out to him for the help that he promises? Or do you react with anger or, or counterattacks? You complain about those who make your work world hard. Or do you cry out to God do you pray for them? Do you believe the Lord will help you right there, right when the dawn of conflict breaks? Do you believe he will strengthen you to respond in godly ways? And that he will even use those people in your life to make you more like the Lord Jesus? Are you specifically through God's word and prayer learning to trust his promises and to entrust these people into God's hands? And so we come to verse seven in the refrain. The Lord of hosts, there's God's presence. The God of Jacob is our fortress. There's God's power. He's present, not absent. Powerful, not wimpy. That's our God. Let's move to the third point. The psalmist not only invites you to count on God's powerful presence when you face crises and when you face opposition, but also when you face an unknown future. 
what's going to happen in this world? In verse 6, the psalmist began to expand the horizons a bit. But the focus was still on Jerusalem. But now in this third stanza, he surveys the broader scene, the bigger picture now. And he shows God's power over all the nations. Look at verse 8. The psalmist in verse 8 invites you to consider the evidences of his powerful presence. Come behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. The works here refer to God's active judgments against the nations. He invites us to come and see. Come and see the wreckage that he has wrought through Israel's victories. Now we don't know which victories he has in mind. There are too many to list throughout the Old Testament. It could be the Exodus itself. Where by the way the waters that drowned out Pharaoh's army there came right at the morning break of dawn. It's a powerful picture back in Exodus 14. Maybe it's the many victories he brought about through Joshua. Uh, Laura and I have been reading in the book of Joshua. Noticing how the writer describes Joshua's victories and the army's victories. But it's very quick to make sure it's understood. It's the Lord who brought those about. Or maybe it's the many victories the Lord enabled David to bring about in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. But whatever the conquests the psalmist has in mind, he wants us to see, come and see the broken spears, the the burned chariots, the dead bones of God's enemies. He wants us to see those displays and reflect on them so that we would learn to trust and to obey him. Verse 10 then does something interesting. He switches from the psalmist's description about God to the psalmist now quoting God. You notice even the quote marks there. Be still and know that I am God. What does this verse 10 mean? I'm afraid that some Christians have taken verse 10 a bit out of context and made it a kind of pietistic, privatized life verse to call on whenever they're facing some concerns and anxiety and kind of let God's still small voice somehow whisper his assurance to them in times of anxiety. I don't don't mean to mock that at all. I do think God by his spirit makes his promises very personal to us. And I do think that we can call upon him and should. But there's a danger in missing the bigger context here in verses eight and nine. To whom does the psalmist here speak? Or to whom is God speaking? Well, on the one hand, this command, be still, seems best understood as a call to the ungodly nations to stop fighting. And that's the way, for example, the the, the Christian Standard Version translates, stop fighting. In other words, God is commanding his enemies here to surrender, to lay down their arms, to quit their opposition, to submit to him as the exalted warrior and king over the nations. It's a call for them to repent and turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. To use the ancient language of, of um, I'm sorry, not the ancient language, sorry. Uh, to, to use the, the language of a Hollywood cop movie. You're surrounded. Come out with your hands up. 
Now, at the same time, who's reading this? The Israelites. And so there is, of course, an assurance to them. <coughs> but I think the assurance that they can find here is an assurance that God will indeed take care of all his enemies and our enemies as well. I think it's similar to the way the prophets would say things like this. Uh, in Isaiah, for example, Isaiah would, would pronounce judgment speaking to Babylon or speaking judgment to Egypt. Folks, the Babylonians and Egyptians are not going to be reading Hebrew scriptures. What's the point? It's so that the Israelites would understand that this is what I'm going to do to these nations. And I think it's similar to what's going on here. So I think there's comfort for us, but I want us to see that bigger context here. This is the warrior king having victory over the nations. And then the psalm ends with our refrain. The unfallen twin towers standing tall. God is present and God is powerful, a refuge for us. But I want to close with seeing one more thing. I want you to see something from verse 8. This little phrase here, come behold. Come behold, or as other translations would say, come and see. Come see. Friends, the psalmist here in Psalm 46 is not the last one to invite us to come and see. The same verbs reappear in John chapter 1. We read about a man named John. We learned about him a little bit today. Not John the writer, but John the baptizer, the one God sent to prepare the way. And John 1 verse 29 tells us this. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. And John said, Behold, or, or see, or look, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A few verses later in verses 35 and 36, we read the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold the Lamb of God. A few verses later, Philip who became a follower of Jesus, tells his friend Nathaniel about Jesus. But Nathaniel is skeptical. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip's reply, come and see. What did Nathaniel do? He went, he came and saw this Jesus, and he became a follower of Jesus. But this groundswell of coming and seeing the works of God here in Jesus doesn't end with John 1. Uh, John chapter 4, perhaps my favorite at this point. There's a woman at the well. You know her story. She comes to faith in Jesus. And after she encounters Jesus, she returns to her townspeople. And what does she say to her townspeople? She says, come and see. John 4, 29. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. I think we can insert a parenthesis there, and who loves me. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did, and that's all her sin. Can this be the Christ? And what do those people do? They responded to her invitation and went to see Jesus, and what happened? Many of them became followers as well. Friends, along with this 
that the, these heavy duty comforts about crisis, about enemy opposition, let's also heed the come and see of other works, these works, this most glorious work, the work where he has brought to us a savior. We look then today not just at devastated Old Testament battlefields, but we look at our redeemer, Jesus Christ. We've sung about him today, we're going to sing about him again as we think about his first coming. He is the one who has brought to us God's powerful presence. He is the one who can help us when we face sudden crises, we face opposition from other people, and we face that unknown future. Let's turn to him for help now in prayer. Let's ask him to be the one to empower us to believe these things, to come and see. Our Father, we do turn to you today and to your Son, the Lord Jesus, empowered by your Holy Spirit today. And we do so recognizing that we so much need a strong sense of your presence and of your promises and power for us. We need them every day, every moment, but we particularly need them when we face the kind of crises that Psalm 46 describes. So Lord, help us to believe and Father, I don't know what might befall this afternoon, tomorrow, or this week. But Lord, we know that you are with us. And we thank you for those promises. In Jesus' name.